I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending September 4th. In this episode, embedded vision systems have been around for a while, most commonly in manufacturing where they've become critical for inspecting products and monitoring processes. In the past, the cost hurdle to implement embedded vision systems was high, but with recent technology innovations, that bar has been significantly lowered. The engineering world is flush with enabling technology and the world is on the cusp of an explosion in embedded vision systems. We talk about that with our guest, Jeff Beer, from the Embedded Vision Alliance. Most electronic distributors have been around for decades and new entrants are rare. Sourceability is a new company in the distribution space, which in five years has grown by leaps and bounds while shaking up the business. Later, we'll talk with Sourceability CEO, Jens Gamper. The world seems saturated with cameras, but there are two very distinct kinds. There are the cameras that are used to capture images, and then there are the cameras that are used to evaluate the objects being imaged. The difference is recording on the one hand and seeing on the other. Cameras for recording have been around for more than a century and a half. Machine vision systems, we also call them embedded vision systems, have only been around for a few decades. It's still a stretch to say that embedded vision systems are new, but on the other hand, they've been expensive, so they're not necessarily common. In the past few years, there's a lot of new enabling technology that's become available, making it easier and cheaper to add vision to a vastly larger number of different products than ever before. We're on the cusp of an explosion in machine vision. Jeff Beer is the head of an engineering consulting firm called BDTI and the founder of the Embedded Vision Alliance. Every year, the Alliance organizes the Embedded Vision Summit. This year, the summit, like so many other conferences, will be virtual. It is scheduled to run from September 15th to the 18th and from the 21st to the 24th. Two weeks seems like a very long time, but there will be no sessions in parallel, so you can actually view the entire conference if you were so inclined. My EE Times colleague, Junko Yoshida, and I both talked with Jeff about Embedded Vision Technology and about the upcoming Embedded Vision Summit. Here's Junko. Let me ask you this. What people thought Embedded Vision was 10 years ago and what people use Embedded Vision today, how the application or the definition of Embedded Vision has changed in the last decade? Yeah, good question. Um, So if you go back a decade, the thing about computer vision, and computer vision is the the term that has traditionally defined this field, especially in the academic sphere, right? Meaning um, understanding of images and video by algorithms. Computer vision, uh, 10 years ago, was in an interesting state. It was uh, intense field of academic research and corporate research, but there were very, very few widely deployed commercial applications. Um, The the field 
where at that point in time you could see uh, commercial deployments at scale was mainly in manufacturing inspection. Uh, everything from you know nuts and bolts to semiconductor wafers, and related applications like uh, sorting of agricultural uh, products, fruits and vegetables, and things like that. And so at that time, when people um, used the term embedded vision, often what they meant was um, taking a system like that and sort of integrating the intelligence and the processing into the camera. So instead of, let's say, on a manufacturing line, instead of having a simple camera that would be feeding a frame grabber and then feeding some kind of workstation, rack-mounted you know, uh, uh, computer, uh, can we move the uh, all of the intelligence into the camera? And are there some advantages to doing that? For example, uh, reducing cost, uh, reducing power consumption, reducing size. And for some applications, like if you imagine uh, like a, a robotic assembly application, you know, having all of the intelligence reside right within the robot uh, might uh, offer you some opportunities to, for example, improve performance where the robot can react more quickly because data isn't being shipped away to some other system and then, you know, uh, insights are being shipped back. So 10 years ago, often when people said embedded vision, that's what they meant. They meant taking a traditional industrial, uh, often people use the word machine vision system and kind of integrating the intelligence into the camera. And that's a legitimate definition, but in my mind, that was always um, far too narrow a definition. My uh, idea for what we meant by embedded vision when we started the Embedded Vision Alliance and the Embedded Vision Summit was that we, we wanted to enable putting visual perception into anything and everything, any kind of device or system or application should be able to have visual perception. And that's what we meant by embedded vision. And the wonderful thing to, to look at now over these past 10 years is that's happening. Um, 10 years ago, it was really hard to find deployed you know, vision applications. Now they're everywhere. You know, any car dealership you go into to, to look at new cars, they've all got cameras, not just to show you the view of what the camera is seeing, but so that the car can warn you of hazards and in some cases actively take uh, protective measures like applying the brakes. Phones, right? Like the, the face ID on the latest generation iPhones, that's embedded vision. Um, everywhere we go now, um, embedded visions in retail stores, it's in consumer devices, you know, doorbell cams, um, uh, physical therapy systems, you name it. And so uh, that to me is, is super exciting. And that's what we, we always imagined. Uh, we wanted what we wanted embedded vision to be was kind of ubiquitous, you know, practical visual perception. All right, that's a good, um, a good, good summary. But so, what are the kind of questions you know the uh, people who attend your embedded vision summit next week, for example? Uh, the uh, what are the things that people would ask? I mean, the uh, the questions that the systems engineers have about embedded vision, how have that changed? Yeah, it's a that's a great question, and there are there are. One of the, the things that characterizes this field is that so many companies are developing their first embedded vision system uh, because 10 years ago, almost nobody 
it wasn't practical. Almost nobody could afford the hardware, had the expertise, et cetera. Now it's really, it's really expanding rapidly. And so many, many companies in every industry are tackling their first embedded vision uh, product development. And it can be pretty overwhelming because there's such a diversity of applications from a wearable device to some room-sized you know, medical imaging thing that goes into a hospital. It's very hard to generalize and say, well, what's the best processor? What's the best uh, type of deep neural network? Um, how should I create my training data? It's hard to give general answers that are correct. It's a very much your miles, mileage may vary kind of situation where you have to look at the very specific requirements and constraints of that application and then navigate, okay, I'm, I'm going to need this type of a processor. I'm going to use these kinds of algorithms. I'm going to use this type of approach for creating my training data, these types of frameworks and software tools and so on. And so for many of people who attend the Embedded Vision Summit, this is what they're trying to figure out is... What, which are the techniques? There's a wide range of techniques and technologies. Which are the techniques and which are the technology building blocks that make sense uh, that are going to put me on a road to successful product development? And so we try and put up in our program people who are doing these things successfully, who have built uh, commercially deployed systems and applications that incorporate visual perception. And so it can speak from experience. Like, well, here's how we did it. Here's what was hard for us. Here's why it was hard. Here's what we tried and didn't work. Here's what we tried and did work. Here's what we learned. Well, that sounds like uh, a nice entree into the the program itself. Um, I noticed that uh, the one of the overarching themes is edge. And my first question is, is how edge maps to embedded um, are they the same concept or are they different? And then I wanted to ask you about, you were talking about some of the enabling technologies. And I noticed that the the program um, seems to answer, try to answer some of those questions. It's, there, are, there are tracks specifically for how to figure out which SOC to use and, and how to deal with AI, the, the training sets that you were talking about. So first question, edge versus embedded or edge and embedded. And uh, then we'll get to the, the, the enablers. Yeah, so a great question. And uh, I would say edge and embedded to me are uh, almost completely overlapping concepts. When we say edge, what we mean is a system where at least some of the processing happens outside of the data center. Uh, if all of the processing happens in the data center, that's great. Good for you. Just not very interesting to us. If at least some of the processing happens somewhere outside the data center, and there are lots of options where that could be, uh, then we consider that edge. And then most of the places where that processing would happen outside the data center are going to be embedded systems, but not all. So for example, you might have an on-premise uh, like data center. Imagine like a big box store. They might have a machine room in the back with some racks of servers, that's their edge processing because they can't send 300 cameras worth of video streams up to the cloud. Um, so they put their own little data center in, in their store. Is that um, edge? Absolutely. Is it embedded? I guess not. We would you know, probably not think of that rack of servers as an embedded system. On the other hand, if they put some or all the intelligence right in the camera, 
obviously that would be embedded. So they heavily overlap edge and embedded, but not quite the same thing in, in my kind of definition. All right. So then you were talking earlier about uh, the, the things that engineers want to learn about in order to implement these types of systems. And, and two, of your, two of your examples were the processors and the AI inferencing and training sets. Um, and that seems to be to map to, uh, to uh, the program pretty well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what engineers, attendees might learn in the, in the SOC sessions uh, and in the AI sessions? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so computer vision, embedded vision, deep learning, they're, they're kind of these magical technologies that enable us to take frames of pixels and extract really useful information. The cost is tremendous amount of computation. You know, many billions, often trillions of operations per second is required to do this in, in typical real world applications. So if we're going to deploy systems with this kind of capability, an essential requirement is processors that can deliver that kind of performance but that have price and power consumption and, and size comparable or compatible with edge or embedded devices. And if you, if you looked at where we were 10 years ago, actually this is, um, this is one of the things that prompted us to start the Alliance and the summit is because we, we could see that embedded processors were improving to the point where it was starting to become feasible to get the necessary performance. But then, this is around 2010, 2012, then deep learning started to become widely adopted. And deep learning really further exploded the processing requirements, pushing what was high up to stratospheric levels. So now what we needed was not just the steady improvement we were already seeing in embedded processors, but we need some kind of quantum leap in processor performance and efficiency. Happily, We've gotten that because these deep learning algorithms, while they consume a tremendous amount of processing power, they're very repetitive. They're very um, uh, simplistic in terms of the patterns of computation. It's just the quantity that's kind of massive. And because of that repetitive, predictable nature, it's much more practical to create processors that are tuned for these architectures, often called domain-specific architectures, that are, that are tuned for these algorithms. And they can deliver 10, uh, easily 10x, sometimes as much as 100x better performance and efficiency just for this class of algorithms than other more general-purpose processors, not limited to CPUs, but also things like GPUs that may be parallel machines, but are still general-purpose. By going to a really special-purpose architecture, you can get a tremendous boost in efficiency. So this has created a kind of Cambrian explosion or gold rush in the processor space where we have nearly 100 companies saying, wow, this, this AI thing's going to be big, especially at the edge. Billions and billions of processors are going to be are going to be sold. We want in and we know how to build a a better processor, a be, you know, better mousetrap, more efficient processor for these algorithms. And so you have literally approaching 100 companies um, building these processors. So if you're a system developer, it's like good news, bad news. Good news is, wow, so much investment, hundreds of billions of dollars over the last five years or so 
has been invested in making better processors for these applications. Dozens and dozens of companies, so much to choose from. But the bad news is, oh my gosh, so much to choose from. How could I ever possibly even look at half of these processors, let alone really figure out which ones I want to use, uh, which one is going to really be the best fit for my application. And so in our program, we try and really get down to very practical terms for helping people figure out, like, well, this kind of processor in a real-world application, what kind of performance can I expect to get out of it? What kind of power consumption can I expect it's going, it's going to require? How much versatility is there? Is it only suitable for the deep neural network inference, or can it also handle the other uh, kind of related functions that are often present in these applications? So we have probably a quarter of the program that's either uh, processor suppliers showing, here's our unique twist and how we deliver this capability, or it's companies that develop the systems like the robotic floor cleaning um, machines that are saying, well, here's how we look at the problem and here's how we evaluate processors and select processors for these applications. So um, uh, that's a, a big emphasis, not only in the program, but also in the exhibits. Lots of companies showing these latest optimized processors to enable delivering uh, this kind of edge visual AI capability, you know, not for hundreds of dollars and hundreds of watts, but for a few dollars or worst case, a few tens of dollars and a few watts or, or less. Is this where we ask you what an over the shoulder session is? <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Um, so, so processors, there's been a lot of investment in processors, and that's really important. Um, another place there's been a lot of investment is in various kinds of frameworks and development tools. And what we mean by an over-the-shoulder session um, in our program is it's a roughly 45-minute opportunity to watch over the shoulder of an experienced engineer. Uh, just like in the workplace, you know, you're you're new to a technology like, hey, can you show me this thing, how you take the deep neural network and you quantize it from 32-bit floating point to 8-bit fixed point while not degrading the accuracy. Like I read about the tutorial online, but I'm still a little bit fuzzy about <laughs> yeah, how to yeah. actually do it. Kind of like making a souffle or something. Like it's one thing to read the recipe. It's another thing to actually see an experienced practitioner do it. And then you're like, oh, right, got it. So that over-the-shoulder session is, is intended to be that. It's intended to have to have an experienced practitioner show step-by-step, step, here's how we do it, while you watch over their shoulder and have the opportunity to ask questions. And, you know, we, we, the event this year is 100% online. Uh, in the past, it's been 100% face-to-face. Going online, we lose some things, we gain some things. One of the things we gain is screen sharing is awesome, right? So in a, in a live setting, it's not quite so easy to do this, you got to set up a big, you know, big screen and maybe have a stage and so on to, to be able to demonstrate to a bunch of people this step-by-step -step process. Online, it's super easy, right? I can just bring up my tools on my screen. I can take you through step-by-step. -step. I can narrate. You can stop me and say, wait a minute, that last thing, I didn't understand that. Could you, could you explain that? So that's what an over-the-shoulder session is at the Embedded Vision Summit this year. So you're putting laser pointer manufacturers out of business right now. <laughs> 
Yes, that's been a long aspiration of mine because I find like <laughs> the effects of laser pointers on conference audiences, it's like my cats. Like yeah. you shine a laser pointer up on your side and you can't hold it steady unless you have like a a superhuman, you know, grip. <laughs> so it's like wobbling around and everyone's like eyes and heads are lolling around watching the dot on your slide and they're no longer listening to what you're saying. So I've actually been on a long campaign to to outlaw laser pointers in presentations. <laughs> and this just is my coup de gras here. Yeah. You found the ulterior motive yeah. for the whole uh, program. It's been my lifelong ambition. <laughs> this actually sounds really fun. Unlike other conferences, this is really hands-on, isn't it? I mean, I didn't really realize until you started talking about over-the-shoulder thing. Now, but I'm still, you know, getting back to the more um, traditional conference um thing um who is your marquee keynote speakers you know if i look up back the history of embedded vision summit i see some really well-known names so give you know drop this is the the time to the name names drop names yeah um i the selection of keynote speakers is something that I personally work on and I put a lot of, of care into it because I think that um, there's an opportunity, if chosen correctly, there's an opportunity for keynote speakers to really ex ex excite and inspire people. And uh, a lot of times keynote spe speeches in conferences are kind of disappointing um, I find, and, and we, we try and find people who really are going to inspire, um, uh, attendees, um, bring not just some technical insights, but get their wheels turning about, huh, if that, you know, if they can do that there, then I wonder if I could do this here. And so the keynote speakers we've had who've, um, really, uh, I think been most memorable are the ones who've who've had that kind of effect. One is Jan LeCun, um, who is one of the inventors of deep learning, uh, who was one of our keynote speakers a number of years ago. And I remember a number of people walked out of that talk. This was really the first time they'd seriously looked at deep neural networks and walked out of that talk saying, wow, this changes everything. And it did, right? Um, deep neural networks, when we do our survey annually of system and application developers who are incorporating visual perception into products, something like 80% of them are now using deep neural networks. 10 years ago, that was zero. Five years ago, it was under 20%. So in, in five years, it went from under 20% to over 80%. Yeah, it is changing everything. So I would I would uh, I would highlight Jan LeCun as one of those um, really inspirational uh, speakers. Brings technical expertise, but also kind of starting people's wheels turning. Uh, another one from last year is Ramesh Raskar from MIT from the Media Lab. He comes from a different angle, from thinking about how to manipulate and utilize light in new ways to enable doing things that seem crazy, like could you make a camera that could see around corners or that could read the pages of a closed book? Sounds nuts, but it turns out like he can show that with the right technology, you actually can do these things. And again, like people go, whoa, okay. So they can do these things in the lab now. I wonder what we can do 
you know, what we'll be able to do in the next few years in a practical uh, product. And this year, our keynote speaker is Dave Patterson from UC Berkeley. I had the privilege of being a student of Dave Patterson's uh, when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley decades ago. And uh, he has had such an influence on the computing industry, one of the inventors of RISC. And more recently, he's been working on these domain-specific architectures um, at Google. Uh, Google has this series of what they call TPUs, tensor processing units, that are exactly what I was mentioning before. They're uh, very specialized processors to be designed to be much more efficient on deep learning workloads uh, by virtue of the specialization. And uh, Patterson is going to talk about how, in his view, the interplay between these kinds of AI applications and domain-specific architectures is opening up uh, what he calls a, a new golden era for computer architecture. Like computer architecture was getting to be this very kind of mature, stable field where the the advances, the innovations were these tiny little increments on top of tiny little increments. And now Patterson's saying, well, we got a new a new set of challenges now and a new set of opportunities <clears throat> where we're not making tiny improvements on top of tiny improvements. We're able to make order of magnitude um, improvements. And uh, I think that'll, that'll get people's uh, wheels turning as well. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. This was fun. Uh, thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity. After we stopped recording, Jeff came back with one more little tiny detail. He said the Embedded Vision Alliance has got a new name. Henceforth, it shall be the Edge AI and Vision Alliance. The new name, he said, signals the organization's intention to broaden its scope to include other types of Edge AI and different types of input, including audio, radar, vibration, pretty much anything else that can be sensed, whether it complements vision or competes with it. The Embedded Vision Summit, in case you're worried about it, will keep its name. We've got a link to the summit's site on this podcast episode's webpage. Find it at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. Electronics distributors play an incredibly important role in the global supply chain. We'll start by acknowledging that supply chain and innovation are two phrases you don't hear too often in the same sentence. Distribution is a mature market segment dominated by a set of companies, most of which have been around for decades. Looking at it from the highest level, the business is relatively simple. It's helping engineers identify the parts they need to build whatever it is they're working on. It's buying and selling, which doesn't seem like fertile ground for innovation. And yet, Sourceability, a company that was founded only five years ago, has managed to shake up the business by essentially redefining what a distribution company is. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find the word distribution on its website. Rather, Sourceability positions itself as a digital products and services company. Sourceability occupies a unique niche in the design chain. It leads with its tools, notably Source Engine. Engineers use Source Engine to quickly search through the inventories of over 
2,600 suppliers for parts that will suit their needs. Those suppliers include both franchised and independent partners. Those are innovations, technology tools, global reach, and a hybrid distribution model. And as things turned out, the company's business approach just happens to be particularly suited for using during a pandemic. COVID-19 has changed the rules of engagement amongst suppliers, distributors, and customers, and Sourceability is focused on digitizing the global supply chain from day one. Jens Gamperl is the Chief Executive Officer of Sourceability. We recorded Jens responding to questions by Barb Jorgensen, one of the most knowledgeable reporters in the distribution market. Jorgensen just happens to work for EPS News, a sister publication of EE Times. Here are Barb's questions and Yen's answers. Hi, Jens. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Let's dive right in. The design chain is embracing digitization, but there are many different models. Can you talk about digitization, particularly in terms of a design to production scenario? With the digitalization today, that has changed. Um, you can have instantly information um, through the internet. You just have to <laughs> use Google and you get uh, already uh, an impression about the, all the technical details that you need. You get an impression about availability, about costs, what the lead times would be. So all that information is digital available. So that had a huge impact from that point of view. So on the other hand, it was back then when you developed a product as a developer, you would hand it over then to procurement. Yeah? And then procurement would come back with all this information about the product itself. Say, oh, man, it's much too expensive or the lead time is 40 weeks. So can you design something else? And then the, the, the project went back to the designer. So today with a digital uh, um, uh, age, you have this information when you start designing a product at your fingertips through the internet. And it's much easier now also to collaborate and bring um, the designer and the supply chain together. I think that's, that's really important, especially if you look at the go-to-market uh, approach that everyone takes. They say, okay, we, we start designing a product today and all the information that you have in, in the design tools now that is already available just through the uh, digital process. And I think that is a major change and it makes uh, building new products and new technology much easier. Let's talk about designers. What have you found to be their biggest challenge, particularly when they're exploring a supply chain? Is it design support, sourcing, finding a partner that can digitally support them both? From my experience, uh, the designer always tries to develop the best product. So he looks in, in the performance of a product and then put the best tools together. In the past, that's meant it was mainly on the technical side to create a good product. But there's always supply chain who comes back and say, okay, we have to uh, um, manage the pricing. We have to manage lead times. So I think the, 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 the challenge was to have all this information in one spot. Today, you have APIs that can really help you to in, in, in infiltrate data in certain applications. And we have done that with a product called Orcat uh, uh, from Ultra Librarian and, and Cadence, where we have within the design tool where you design a PCB, we have API now our data from our marketplace with all the information about 
uh, lifetime information, about pricing, about lead time, about alternates. So that really helps the designer yeah, um, to make a decision about what product to design in at this point. And now this information is available in one spot in, in, in his environment where he is comfortable with. He can, on a fingertip, have uh, this information available. And I think it makes him much more comfortable in developing, on one hand, the best technical product, and on the other hand, to understand potential risks in his design when it comes to supply chain and production. Let's talk about procurement. What are the challenges procurement faces? Do they differ significantly from design? Is it your sense that they operate independently of one another? So I definitely think uh, they, they significantly differ from each other uh, because supply chain people and, and procurement people, they usually work surrounded in their ERP systems, in their processors. So they have not that flexibility that a designer might have when he designs or she designs a product. So what they try to do is now, uh, after a design comes to them to say, okay, I put it in my system and all of a sudden I realize, damn, I only have one or two suppliers for that product, yeah? And I at least I need three or four, or there is a long lead time. So how do I get that product to market if the lead time is 60 weeks? That means when the product is finally designed, it takes me more than a year to get the, the components in to manufacture that product. So there's a different challenge in the supply chain. But if both, and, and I think this is where we're going to, if both design and supply chain can rely on the same data, I'm sure that design will develop a sense on the challenges of procurement if we talk about life cycle management, if we talk about market availability, if we talk about uh, production options. Uh, um, so I think that it's important that the data is available. And that's what the API does today. You infiltrate, you, you deliver your data uh, in, 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 in a, based like on our platform through API, and the design engineer can use it in his tool that he uses to design a product, but the same information is available in the ERP system for a supply chain or procurement person. Let's talk about the two constituencies. Do designers typically look for a solution that digitally combines design and sourcing, or do they typically separate the two? Why is it important for procurement to have visibility into design? Yeah, I think it's it's always a good decision if the designer focuses on design because the goal is always to have the best possible product. But there's certain impact that's necessary for both of them to understand that there's a dependence. And let me give you an example. If you take an automotive company today that develops a new car, they have a lot of sub-suppliers, someone for the infotainment, for the airbag for the lighting. So there's different sub-suppliers. So if the sub-supplier develops a product high technical today uh, for EV, for electronic vehicle, and it's the newest technology, but this newest technology is not available and not scalable, then the car manufacturer has a huge issue because if the lighting system doesn't work, he cannot ship a car. This is where you try to create a certain visibility where you say, okay, 
I'm the car manufacturer and I give you a list of manufacturers and components that we prefer because we have a deep insight on their product schedule, on their manufacturing capabilities, on scaling capabilities and so on. And I think this is where, where these two worlds merge together. But the idea always is to have the best possible car with the newest technology. Yeah. And then maybe you have to compromise a little bit on the supply chain if the technology is too advanced that you really cannot go to market on a, on a, a reasonable time with your automotive. Yeah? And I think we have with uh, um, uh, uh, Tesla here in the US, we have a really good example pushing for new technology, automated driving. Yeah, And, and on the other hand, you see the suppliers some, sometimes struggle to keep the pace that Tesla is, is pushing them to. So I think, yeah, try to get the best product, yeah, keep it separated, but at a certain point, supply chain comes in and says, hey, I'm raising my finger because here we have already a, a, a long lead time, or we, here we are not getting really the quantities that we need to produce and scale our business. All companies have sourcing problems. We don't have to use the word hybrid, but how does a mix of franchised and non-franchised lines sold by a distributor benefit customers of all sizes? I think there is, first of all, we have to understand um, uh, the difference between maybe a global business and a regional business. While all top franchise, top five or top 10 franchise distributors are global companies, they act very regional. So if you want to buy from the number one in, in this industry in, in Europe, you only get access to their European inventory, to their European pricing, and you have no visibility of what happens at the other uh, part of the world, what happens in Asia, pricing and availability-wise, or in the US. This is where the independent comes, because if I look at the top five independent distributors, they are all global companies, but they act global. Yeah? The, the customer usually, no matter where he sits, usually gets the same pricing. It doesn't matter if the customer is in Europe, in Asia, or in Americas, if you get a quote from an independent distributor for a part number, it's usually the same pricing. So that makes a, a huge difference. So that means like the independent give you probably a much better uh, visibility of the market. And that was the reason that we uh, um, started developing a product, uh, our, our uh, uh, marketplace, Source Engine, because Source Engine does exactly now consolidate you more than 2,800 suppliers on one platform and on one click. Yeah? And by using tools like our bomb tool that we just launched, and which is a huge success, yeah, we see that someone of our customers and users can upload a bill of material with up to 4,000 part numbers yeah, and gets an instant quote on this, on, on this bill of material on over all manufacturers that he has in the bill of material. A franchise can't do that because a franchise is limited to the franchise lines he carries as a platform yeah, and as a, a, a technology uh, a developer for the, for the distribution manufacturers in our industry. We already have more than 2,800 suppliers. And if you upload the bill of material, you'll get a quote and then it's transactionable. So compared to other bill of material tools that are out in the market, you can push a button, one button, and you can source your whole bill of material. And that shows that 
a certain independence that you have, if you call it franchise or not franchise, really does help the customer to make the right decision and use the best tools that are in the market. That's why we have Source Engine and that's why we develop tools like our bomb tool inside Source Engine where you can execute really on a global scale and you're not limited to regional supply and offers. If you had to define one characteristic that differentiates your business model from others, what would you say? Yeah, this is a very good question because it, it even changes more and more and, and it changes even our business model ourselves de- developed over the last few years. The idea was always to develop technology and give our customers and users of our services and products the ability to process mass data. So today with SourceEngine.com, we have the opportunity really to consolidate a lot of suppliers for our customers on a digital platform. And uh, the beauty is the customer decides how he wants to consume these offers, this data. He either can go to www.sourceengine.com, log in and do the business online, Or on the other hand, and that's what we experienced in the last two years, and that also changes a little bit our business model. People said, yes, we love SourceEngine.com, but do you really think we send you tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars through the internet, like on a www.SourceEngine.com? No, we don't want that, but we like the data. Can we get the data and the information you carry on SourceEngine.com and can integrate it into our environment? into our SAP or Oracle or Info, Info, whatever ERP system the customer uses. So that brought us to the point that we say, okay, we deliver you this data. So we are creating now, we are collecting the data, we are collecting all these offers, we consolidate all these suppliers, and then we deliver it electronic electronic via API or FTP, whatever the customer can consume to the customer. So then the customer, uses our data and makes a selection of the products he wants to buy and he pushes a button and we, today we, transact on behalf of all these suppliers. We consolidate. So if you have multiple suppliers, you still get only one shipment and one invoice. In the future, we see opportunities for our suppliers and we we have first um, pilot projects. We are not. We do the transaction and the shipment. It's actually done by the supplier itself. So the supplier ships straight to the customer, which saves time. Yeah, And I also can see that in the future, the platform is just for the transaction and our suppliers not only ship, but also bill the customer. Yeah, And for us, there is somewhere a, a fee for the transaction that we then charge to the supplier. So it's a, a win-win situation for the customer because he gets the best offers on one platform, he gets quick supply, and at a certain point he can decide if he wants us to bill or if he wants our supplier to bill direct to him. I think nobody else has a business model like this today in our industry. There is no marketplace, no independent marketplace where everyone can participate, and that is unique. Yeah? And uh, if we see the development of technology at a certain point, yeah, it's about how to integrate the data that is available to us into our customers' ERP and, and IT infrastructure. So, and um, a customer always would have 
preferably one solution that he has to embed into it instead of having a hundred suppliers, a thousand suppliers that they have to integrate into their environment. So I see us well positioned for the future with the technology that we develop and the tools that are inside this uh, technology that our business model, being a technology company and a service provider for our industry, will help us more and more to gain traction and help us to grow grow and, and scale our business. Thanks so much for your time. We'd like to thank our colleague, Barb Jorgensen from EPS News for conducting this interview with Jens Garnperl, Chief Executive Officer of Sourceability. We'd also like to thank Sourceability for sponsoring this segment of the podcast. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. Today, we're simultaneously going to visit the past and the future, and we're going to do some audience participation. We will be transporting to September 8th, 1966, and also sometime around the year 2265, give or take. The date in 1966 was when the first episode of Star Trek aired. The show had cheesy sets and, depending on one's point of view, cheesy acting. But it did have a singular ethos, that peace was possible, and some of its scripts were written not by Hollywood hacks, but by professional science fiction writers. Star Trek was hardly the first science fiction TV show or the first TV show to tackle societal themes, but it was the first to do both at once and be successful at it more often than not. More than 50 years later, with the Star Trek franchise still going strong, along with Star Wars, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Blade Runner, Avatar, The Expanse, Devs, and TV channels dedicated entirely to science fiction, with all that, it's hard to remember that in 1966, science fiction was still widely dismissed as a literary backwater fit only for prepubescent boys and puerile adults. Even at the time, that was beginning to change, but only beginning. Jean-Luc Godard had just done Alphaville, and Francois Truffaut had just filmed Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, and 2001 would arrive in just a few years. But even so... Planet of Vampires and Monster Go-Go were more typical of contemporary sci-fi film fare. So when Star Trek arrived in the mid-60s, taking the genre seriously, that was not typical. And sure, the hero was the brave and intrepid captain, but the person who got the crew out of one jam after another were like as not the science officer or the engineer. The STEM guys saved the day plenty of times and were heroes in their own right too, and that was kind of unusual. It was inspirational, in fact. The Enterprise was the ship that launched a thousand geeks. That's actually a significant undercount, but it's a deliciously cheesy line, and I'm reluctant to part with it. Between Star Trek and NASA putting a man on the moon in 1969, coincidentally the year that Star Trek ended its brief three-year run, engineering had become something to aspire to. Now, it said the original flip phone's clamshell design was modeled on the Star Trek communicator. It's probably a folktale. But on the other hand, those clamshell cell phones were definitely reminiscent of Star Trek communicators. Okay, so here's the audience participation part. 
We're inviting you to tell us how Star Trek inspired you, either to become an engineer or how to build a product. Record it as an MP3. Keep it down to 30 seconds or less if you can. And pop it over to me in email. Make sure I have your name. If I get enough stories that are interesting, I'll play them next week. My email address is on this podcast episode's webpage, which you'll find at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. I'll also include a list of some of my favorite Trek-related stuff. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending September 4th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. Once again, we thank Sourceability for sponsoring our segment on electronic distribution. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.